Welcome to Fresh Off the Boat. I'm delighted to be chatting with uh, Payal Lal, and she's a graduate from Yale and US. Uh, she graduated doing psychology and computer science. So that's an interesting combination, and we'll all learn more about it. Uh, so the first question to you, Payal, is how were your choices when you graduated from high school? Your journey was a bit different because you also took a gap year uh, and then enrolled at Yale and US. How was it like when you finally got there, but also the journey and the decisions you made before getting there? Yeah, thanks for having me, Arjun. It's uh, super nice to be on your podcast. Um, I guess for me, it was really a very uh, twisted sort of journey, one that I wouldn't have um, sort of visualized before or dreamt of. Um, so I finished high school in Delhi um, at Amity um, and in 2012, and then as soon as I finished, I was so sure that I was not going to do very well in my board exams, definitely not well enough to get into a Delhi University school, um, that I started to give entrance exams as a way to like back up, um, just in case, you know, I don't get into any other school, maybe the entrance exams will save my ass sort of thing. Um, so I did that. And then turns out that my scores were okay, but then also I got into a law school in Delhi, which was well known. So then I thought since I got in this time, maybe it was luck that made me get in, I should just take the opportunity. So I took it and then I went into law school in like August of 2012 um, and I absolutely did not like it. <laughs> so within four days, I was sure that this was not gonna be my future. Um, and I left, so that was a sort of, uh, I was a law school dropout. Um, and after just four days of being in law school, I was, I found myself in a place where I could decide what I wanted to do. And on one hand, it was a bit nerve wracking, but I would say that was a very small part of it. It was more inspiring and exciting because now the whole world and a lot of possibilities were suddenly open. You know, when I was in law school, I knew I'd have to be in India for most of my life because, um, with law, it's quite specific to geography. Um, and then also in terms of profession, suddenly the whole wide world was open, which I thought was super exciting. Um, so then I started my own company in that gap year, um, thinking that I would love to just run my own company, whether or not I go to college. You know, I wasn't even sure I wanted to or needed to go to college um, to learn. And it was super fun. And at the same time, my parents were kind of nervous about having a college dropout in the family. So um, I started to then prepare for my SATs. It was still quite unclear if we you know, had the money and the means for me to go to a US school, especially, which is what, $60,000 a year. So I started applying uh, with the intention of seeing where I can get in with some financial aid and scholarship. Um, so that happened and then I kept running my startup um, and it was really wonderful because I remember in March um, of 2013 uh, when the decisions were coming out of different schools, I was actually shortlisted for um, one, of the, one of the programs called the Thiel Fellowship, which awards 20 kids under the age of 20, $100,000 every year to drop out and um, start their own company. So because I'd already dropped out and started my own company, um, it was a nice sort of choice, you know, where I could just get $100,000 to run it. Um, so it turned out that the decision came out um, on the same day for the Thiel Fellowship Finals. And 
and Yale and US, which is where I ended up going. So I got Yale and US, but I didn't get the Peel Fellowship finals. Um, and that's when I was invited to go to this Yale and US experience weekend in Singapore, where they fly everyone in. Um, and you know, when they did fly us all in, I really actually enjoyed the experience of being around people my own age, and you know, everyone was quite smart. So learning from a peer group is something that I hadn't really had for a long time at that point um, in April 2013. So that's when I decided to actually stop working on my own company that I'd started um, and go to university. That's fantastic. And how was it like? Did it meet your expectations? Of course, the weekend prepped you up a little bit, but you know, going back to academics after one year of being in the hustle of bustle of running a company, uh, how did you make that switch? What resources were available on campus? And how did you adapt to the new learning style, very different from back home, say at Amity in India? That's such a good question. You know, um, I didn't really think of that at the time. Um, but Yale and US was a different experience because I was part of its first cohort. So there was no, there was no um, student organizations or support like that, or there was no like entrepreneurship club or like a funding society which would give you money to start your own company. There was nothing there. It was like a startup in itself. There were 150 of us in the first cohort, very small. Um, there was, I think, about 50 faculty members. It was a student-teacher ratio of one is to three. Um, so it was so tiny and so small that it felt like a startup. I think if I would have gone from high school straight to college to Yale and US, I would have felt a sharper difference than I felt going from doing a startup to another startup, which was Yale and US. And then what kind of resources really uh, you know, bowled you over in terms of the way education is delivered and how it's so different from a CBSE sort of style of uh, not just uh, delivery of education, but in terms of assessments? Yeah, that's so interesting because um, I work in education tech, so it's very interesting to think about that because CBSE was um, largely didactic where you where you listen and then you learn. Um, and it's a passive style of learning where your involvement as a learner is limited to listening and not to actual interaction. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily worse, but it it's less engaging, especially for younger people who have smaller attention spans, not to say that adults have very long attention spans either. Um, so it was interesting because in Yale and US, it was almost always seminar style. We had one or we had maybe, maybe three lectures a week in the beginning and eventually it was two and then one, but most of it was uh, groups of like 20 students or, or even lesser in a class and we would have to do some pre-reading. And then um, we'd have to show up to class and actually talk about it and not just talk about it in a way like, oh, summarize what you learned, but we'd have to have opinions. Um, and opinions was one thing that I didn't really know how to have at that point. Um, you know, like I, I knew how to read and understand and, and say that back to a teacher, but to have your own opinion was really hard. Um, and one of the first things I remember struggling with in the first month, all of us were, because we didn't have any seniors to tell us this, um, was that you don't have to do all the pre-reading. So the whole idea of like skimming through material and showing up to class, um, that was quite new to me. So in, in that sense, it was an adjustment. I'm not sure if you went decided, uh, studying psychology and doing a minor in computer science, was it something that you meandered into? And how did that decision work for you 
while you're working now, you might be able to reflect back as to what are the great things about what you studied in psych. And of course, CS is something you'd, you'd obviously credit because you're working in a tech company. So tell us more. Um, you know, I don't know, because I feel like no matter what I had studied, it would come into some sort of use now. Um, so I feel like for, I mean, that's true for a liberal arts education, I think. Maybe not if you're doing like engineering or medicine, in which case, of course, you need to have very domain-specific expertise. In my case, uh, I went in not really deciding what to do. I, I thought of maybe economics because that felt like a conventional choice and it felt like an interesting topic. Um, but at Yale and US, the first two years were actually just common curriculum. So there was no need to choose right away. You could explore. Um, and what I really appreciated about that exploration process was that it taught me how to learn different types of topics, which I otherwise would not have. So um, after I graduated, one of the significant differences I felt in my thinking was that um, I could pick up things faster than I could before. So even if it was a scientific concept that before I would not have been able to pick up, um, especially since I did not do much science in school, I felt like now I could just because I had been taught how to think about those things. Um, so I decided on a psychology major and a computer science minor um, in my second or third year of college. Um, and I think it was the reason I chose those things was I was interested in psychology um, and I really enjoyed the whole coding process. And it was just something I wanted to explore to see if it's something I want to do. Um, and just in general, because it's a useful skill to have. Um, like now, I would say, looking back, um, psychology is definitely useful because just being able to look more closely at people and understanding them, whether it's you, you obviously don't know what they're thinking, but just understanding them and having the capability to empathize with them helps a lot. I don't know if that really is something that you have to do psychology for as a major, but it helps, especially if you're in a customer facing role like me. Um, and I would say that even for computer science, I don't use it anymore in my day to day. So I don't even remember much of it. Um, but I think it helps if you're in tech, because a lot of people you talk to will be using terminologies and jargons that you otherwise may not know. So it really helps to have one sort of of your two majors be, um, be technical if you're going into tech. Wonderful. Uh, Yale and US seems like a place which so pioneering and obviously let students participate in building <laughs> traditions or building even the curriculum in some sense. Uh, what is it that you feel that you were able to do beyond academics at Yale and US and not just you, the first few batches, able to sort of build up as a social infrastructure for that institution? Yeah, I would say, you know, with um, a lot of college education, sure, like part of it is the classroom and then so much of it is outside the classroom. So student organizations and residential life is so important. Um, and this was particularly interesting for the reason that much of the student population was from Asian countries. Um, we did have a fair bit from the U.S. and Europe as well. 
um, and a little bit from Africa, but because it was so Asian in its ways that um, the idea of not living with your parents when they're in the same city, because so many Singaporeans had to come live in on Yale and Yale's campus um, as a compulsory rule, that I think it really put a lot of emphasis on student life on campus, um, on just living together. And a lot of it was just, you know, trying to sort out the, the problem you have with your sweet mate, or <clears throat> some of it was just, um, you know, what do you do outside the classroom? Like, what are my interests and who else has those interests? So then people would find each other and then start student clubs and then find other people who were interested in those areas and start student organizations. So you also had Yale as the, you know, Connecticut campus uh, as sort of not just a donor, but a very a close partner to Yale and US. How does that association work and what resources did you feel that you gained from uh, because of that? Or if you know friends who actually did a semester there or because of the network gained something, how would you elaborate on that? Um, so I would say with Yale, um, we spent, so the first cohort spent a month um, on the Yale campus. Um, it was sort of a way to carry over some of Yale's values to Yale and US. So we spent time living in different residential uh, buildings and then spent time talking to the professors and just seeing what the Yale culture was like. Um, and that really helped, I think, because just seeing the types of activities that people would do, you know, like um, go to go to a talk by a famous professor in the evening or it could be just meeting friends who are interested in the same things or there was a lot of musical and and um, dancing abilities so people would organize shows and whatnot as well so a lot of that came from the first month and then after that students did have um, the capability to do an exchange there so they would spend one semester on the Yale campus if they wanted there wasn't, um, so that would have to be in place of another semester you did somewhere else. So some people would choose to go to countries that they wanted to explore. So if my friend wants to learn Korean or is learning Korean, they would choose to go to Korea instead of going to Yale. But we did have a sizable amount going to Yale every year. Um, and then other opportunities that they offered was the Yale summer sessions. So Yale summer sessions um, were these five week sessions in different countries over the summer where you could go and you could learn about that country in a formal classroom setting, but then also just go out and explore. So you'd have three to four hour of classes um, and then you could go and explore the rest of it. So it was pretty fun. I did one in Japan um, and that was really nice. So it was it was nice to have the resources of NUS and the network that NUS has in Singapore while having access to these opportunities, which were very sort of personal focused um, from Yale. That's fantastic. And in terms of the alumni network and other such connections, I'm sure there would be uh, interesting events. And now, of course, it's all online. So just being part of a larger online bubble of a Yale community would be interesting. Are you still in touch? I know it's been three years since you graduated. What is the alumni connection for you and how does it work for you? Um, I think that's a good question. I'm only recently starting to see alumni benefits because uh, when I graduated, then my cohort was the only alumni, right? We were the first members of the alumni club. Um, so, you know, in traditional settings, you can tap on alumni for internships or jobs as you're graduating. 
in my case we didn't have alumni to do that so we didn't feel the power of alumni just then but um i think when you know this year especially now that we have i believe three cohorts who are out of college or maybe even more three i think um i it's been really wonderful because i think i can reach out to anyone who's been to Yale and US and expect a response from them um and you know it's nice because everyone goes into different areas but some also go into the same area so um the way that the network is growing is it's quite nice to see wonderful i'm going to switch gears and actually uh, come to the meat of our conversation i was itching to uh, get to was your interest in entrepreneurship and the mindset that you think you developed over the years starting a company start of college and then doing something again while you were in college and taking uh, the plunge of maybe spending a year building that out or two years more, more than two years building out social mooks so tell us about what it takes to make those decisions and what was uh, the learning from that experience uh yeah i think for me like startups were something that were always super fun because it felt like you were making some sort of impact or change or um you know trying to make the world a little bit better so it, it had that idealistic aspect but at the same time it had this hustle um where you really have to work very hard to make things a reality to make something out of nothing um so you know when i started my first company i was 18 and i think at the time i knew very little about what it meant to start a company um so that was a very very steep learning curve and more learning a lot um and then the my second company was also around the same year it was sort of like a t-shirt business that i started with my best friend um and then the third one was during college which was on the social mood side so it's certainly like a very interesting experience to start your own company and then after that i worked at a startup actually after i graduated so even being an employee i felt that the thing i really enjoyed about startups was the ability to make an impact very quickly um on what the team is doing and to learn a very broad range of skills um for me what would really drive me each time each every single time is that i just saw something i really wanted um and i just wanted to see that product or service in the world like i just felt like this is something that the world should have and that i especially want um and that would just drive me to to build it you know like every every day i just wanted that product um i think there were times that i would i'd started things that didn't last very long like like two day startups or one month startups kind of thing um so i had a lot of those peppered in the middle um and i felt that for those those were just things that i didn't need badly enough or things that along the way i realized were not relevant for whatever reason and i was not really solving a problem um so i would say that it it was a mix of things but in the end what would really drive me is i just really want this thing to exist so what inspirations or resources uh, that came your way by serendipity or by sort of design you know i remember meeting you before you were going to israel and uh, we had this conversation about you know the fact that you could go there and maybe build out features for your social mook startup in combination and if you reflect back what are the inspirations you've had to keep at it and keep building something which probably might not see light of day or might not end up the way you wanted i think it's the the process has been quite enjoyable for me each time um you know i 
I really don't um, mind staying up late doing things like that. It's sort of like a fun thing for me. So it never really felt like work, um, I would say. So it, it, it didn't need any additional motivation or driver. Um, I would say to answer your question about resources that I really feel like there was a big difference when I had resources and when I didn't. Um, so I think the number one resource that was helpful to me was like mentorship. So early on, I didn't really have too many mentors. And that was, I think, a huge, huge barrier. As I started to like grow my network and find mentors, um, you know, people who had been there, done that, who knew a little bit, they would point out my blind spots, which I to date think um, are so useful to know. Um, so there were just many things that I didn't know. For instance, when I was um, when I was 18 working on my first startup, um, I just did not know that you shouldn't build a product before testing the market. Um, so, you know, I started I started building and then somebody told me, actually, that's not at all what you should do. It's the opposite of what you need to do. Um, so just things like that, I think that was number one mentorship. Um, number two related is network for me, um, because having people to give you actual feedback, having people to um, promote you or to not or to even just, you know, be supporters is so helpful in that case. So I would say that a lot of my network came as I built startups because it attracted like minded people who were interested in the same thing and who were excited by the vision. Um, one of the hardest challenges I've had is finding a team to work with. So especially as a startup, right, when you don't have money or bootstrapping, you can't pay people always, especially if you have no income as a student. Um, so I think that was one of my hardest challenges was to cons consistently have people who were equally excited to work on this with me more in a co-founder capacity than an employee capacity. Um, so I think that was quite helpful. When I went to NUS, um, then I found that there was quite a bit of resources there. So I say NUS because um, NUS specifically has something called NUS Enterprise, which offers resources for startups. So they sort of gave me a grant at some point. They had a lot of mentorship. They had a co-workspace where you could go and work and do your meetings and all of that. Um, and, you know, the community was very, very strong there. Um, so that was quite nice because that's how I also got my internship in Israel, uh, which is known as the Startup Nation. Um, so going there, I felt like I learned a lot about just what agility means and, you know, the level of speed that, that companies can and should achieve. Um, so I thought that those resources were sort of my top three uh, in, in being in the startup world. Fantastic. How about uh, telling us a little bit about the companies that you worked with after running your startup, how did you make those decisions to stick to edtech as an industry? What is the edtech industry? I know it's becoming uh, kind of ubiquitous, everyone from my five-year-old daughter to my son, everyone's and me. This is, this is an example of capturing information from our conversation and sharing it with our students. Everything is becoming technology driven in education. Colleges don't know what to do. They'll have uh, in-person classes for fewer students than ever before. Uh, but what's your uh, take on this whole ed tech industry and what's your journey been? Uh, yeah, I would say there's just so, so broad, you know, like um, there's this whole area of 
uh, K through 12, there's preschooling, then there's higher ed, which includes universities um, and postgraduate programs. And then there's adult learning, there's lifelong learning, then there's the whole private tutor market. So it's just, it's a lot of different things, I would say. And it's such a broad phrase. Um, the thing I like about the industry is the people, because they generally are the kinds who have some lofty goal in mind for how they want to make learning better and accessible to everyone. But at the same time, they're very practical people, and they really think about how to make it happen. So they're not just preaching it, but they're actually trying to practice it. Um, so I think in that sense, I really like the education industry for what it is and for its people. Um, I would say it's like changed a lot over time. So, you know, at first the emphasis was just to kind of build tools um, that would support teachers in their in-classroom practice. And nowadays it's becoming a lot about online learning and how to make um, online experiences more engaging, especially for kids who can't sit in front of their, you can't expect a six-year-old to sit in front of like a Zoom, right? Um, so just finding more creative ways to do that has been interesting. For me, my focus has been less on K through 12 and more on um, higher ed and adult learning lately. Um, so the startup I worked for after I graduated college, um, that was focusing on social learning in classrooms um, in higher ed. So they sold a software that would make classrooms more active. Um, and specifically, it was a team-based learning pedagogy that they'd help implement. Um, and now I work with LinkedIn. Um, when I joined, I was working on LinkedIn Learning specifically, which is a product um, that's used for online learning. Um, and now I do LinkedIn Learning and work on the recruiting solutions. So it's a bit of both right now. Great. So uh, what is the ecosystem for startups uh, in Singapore? And if you know a little bit about Asia, Pacific regions, why is Singapore a popular choice and what makes it um, maybe a step ahead from other destinations, emerging markets like India? I would say, yeah, like Singapore is, it's better in some ways and it's worse in other ways uh, when it comes to startups. So the ways it's good is that uh, the government really supports a lot of entrepreneurship in the sense that they have a lot of money, grants, um, even investors out here um, who are willing to put money into startups. They also have a friendly system for foreign entrepreneurs who want to come and be here. They have an entrepreneur pass, which is great. Um, so that helps. I would say that in terms of um, in terms of finding talent, it's a bit harder here because if you're a startup here, you're competing for talent with like headquarters of big companies, multinational companies um, who pay a lot more, who give a lot of perks. Um, so it's very, very difficult for startups here to attract talent. Um, I feel like in India, there might be the same problem to some extent, but I also feel like a lot of people in India would want to work for startups. Um, they're actually excited by the idea of that. Whereas here, it's less so. It's not as much. Um, there's a lot of founders, but in terms of startup employees, I, I find fewer people. Um, and I would say that, you know, when it comes to emerging markets, Singapore has fewer problems to solve than other emerging markets. So when you walk out on the street in a, in a developing nation, you actually see a lot of things you can change and that you can help with, like, you know, uh, whether it's like noise pollution or whether it's um, people on the street who could use some food. Um, so there's a lot of things to solve 
Whereas in Singapore, the public sector, the government takes care of a lot of things. Um, if you see something wrong, it's probably going to be fixed the next week. Um, so because the government is so efficient, which is great, it does reduce uh, the number of problems that the country has. And the market is also very, very small. So if we have a problem here and someone does solve it, then the markets they can expand to are limited because developing nations have different markets with different problems. Um, so in that sense, I would say it's, it's different compared to India um, and in terms of the size of the opportunity available. Absolutely. Well said. I'm going to switch to uh, asking you about uh, things uh, that you care about and also your learnings. If you were to identify things that are really important to you, one, two, or three, as a person, as a human being, what would you pick? Um, I would say for me, number one is, is just constantly learning. Um, on days that I don't learn new things or I don't devote an hour to learning, um, I feel very incomplete in ways and um, I almost am in a bad mood. Um, so I've noticed that one of the best ways for my well-being to stay good, especially in these times, um, is just to read for an hour a day type of thing. So I think that's really important to me, uh, learning and curiosity. Um, I think number two would be would be friends and family. Um, so I think that, you know, keeping your close ones close always and prioritizing them over work, especially or um, or studying or whatever you do, I think that's been something that's key for me. Um, and I think number three, it's like a simple one, but just like exercise and sleep, uh, it makes such a massive difference just to your mental health and then to your mood and all of that, that to me, I just try to make sure I'm sleeping the same number of hours and exercising every day. Hey, you, so you pretty much answered the final question I was about to ask you, it was about how to deal with uh, uncertainty and times of COVID. Uh, but let's flip the question a little bit. We know that many students will not be able to make it to campus for whatever reason. And uh, education as we know it has been given that push to reinvent, reimagine. Uh, what advice would you give high school kids who were supposed to start college or the ones who are supposed to go back to uh, the next year of college? How do you deal with uncertainty and how do you constantly keep learning uh, and somehow also <laughs> you know, have that social experience uh, available to them uh, online if, uh, if it's not going to happen on campus very soon. Right. Yeah, I think it's really important to for students right now who are um, going into college or thinking of going into college to have a really long, hard think about why they were going to college. Um, was it to get into a particular field or to study something that they haven't been able to explore yet? Um, I know for some kids, especially the ones going abroad, it's super important to, uh, for some of them, it's super important to go into those areas that they couldn't have found in India as easily, um, such as deep tech maybe. Um, so I find that just, you know, thinking about what it is that you want out of college experience is important because if it's just the social life and the student organizations and all of that, maybe now is not the best time um, to go into that sort of system because you don't know if that's going to happen for another year or so. Um, but then on the other hand, I do think that this is an opportunity in ways because um, the next set of students who go into college will be a huge part in defining what the future of college even looks like. 
one of the recent podcasts I was listening to was talking about how um, they do not have enough student feedback at the moment to really understand what it is that students want out of their college experience. So just, you know, even going into a college and um, contributing to building that experience for future cohorts is something that will be looked upon uh, very positively once they graduate. But I would say right now, it seems like a lot of focus is just on whether or not colleges are going to happen. Um, so I can understand that that's a really difficult choice to make. Thank you. Thank you, Payal. This has been absolutely wonderful catching up, reconnecting with you. Uh, we look forward to inviting you to some webinar or on topics that we'll announce soon. It'll be great to have your views shared with uh, a panel and a larger audience. So thank you. I look forward to connecting again soon. Thanks, Arjun. <laughs>